everybody. Welcome to the 419th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have so much to talk about. Lots of little news bits that add up to one big IoT podcast smart home show. Woo. Um, okay, we're going to be talking about water savings with the IoT. We're going to do an update on the Zigbee Pro release. We've got an update on what I wrote about last week on medical privacy. Turns out NIST is interested in this too. Yay. We've got a couple new medical devices to talk about that y'all might care about. We've got news from iRobot, both a regulatory probe and a new feature. We've got new features on HomePods and new features for Google Nest devices. Kevin also went hands-on with Matter using Home Assistant and is going to talk about his experience there. We're also going to announce our winner for uh, the Nest Audio devices that I'll send off to you. And we're going to hear from our guest, Robert Pyle, who is the head of real estate strategy at a company called Homa Group that is building smart homes. So we talk about the real estate market, smart homes, all that fun stuff. And we're going to hear from our advertiser on Logic. But first, a message from another one of our sponsors, Silicon Labs. Silicon Labs is a leader in secure, intelligent wireless technology, and they've launched their 2023 Tech Talks. This year's Tech Talks include dedicated technology series for Matter, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and LP WANs in order to help you build the development skills needed to deliver cutting-edge IoT products. Join Silicon Labs experts and industry leaders for these one-hour virtual trainings created for developers by developers. You can tune in, ask questions, and accelerate your device development today. Register now at scilabs.com. Okay, I'm not going to make you wait. If you sent me a newsletter to info at Stacy on IoT, you are amazing because apparently that email address wasn't entirely real for some of this, but many of you figured out alternative ways to contact me. So if you did the work and you found another way to reach out to me, and several of y'all did, we put you in a drawing and we drew and Seth, I'm going to say Browley, I've already reached out to you, but you are now the proud owner of, well, you will soon be the proud owner of two Google Nest speakers, smart speakers. No, Nest Audio, that's what they're called. Nest Audios. Yes. Okay, so congratulations, Seth. Yay. Um, you get my old device, which I do think will work. I think it's a function of Google being not great at figuring out who I'm talking to in my home. But I was just done. Just done. Both our homes have so much test gear and freaky configurations that I'm not surprised this happened. So Yeah, and, and more to the point, my husband was just done. He was like, I hate you, Google. And I can't yeah. have hating Google. I mean, I can, but it, it would just not be good. Okay, so moving right along. Let's talk about science. Actually, this isn't science. This is sustainability, but this is why I'm excited about IoT. I always talk about it making the invisible visible and then allowing us to take action on it. That is the simplest reason we should be implementing IoT in places, right? We get all excited like, oh, this and AI and oh, we can do all kinds of other things. You can't, but at its simplest It just gives you a better idea of what's going on, and then you can react accordingly. And lo and behold, Kevin found this great story about the Fairmont Grand Del Mar Golf Course Club. (laughs) I'm like, it's a hotel golf course? Oh, it's probably a golf resort. It's in San Diego. That's We've talked about soil sensors for a couple of years now, and I get the idea of having, you know, soil sensors to track moisture and pH levels and all that and potentially to save water. But this is like this article, it just blew my mind in terms of how much water just 12 sensors on a golf course can save. Um, and that's exactly what the superintendent did. He put 12 sensors using the Groundworks system. Um, which they offer in different packages for how many golf course holes you want to monitor and all that. He just has 12. And they have saved, well, I should say, they've seen a reduction of 24 million gallons of water from May to December of 2021 using this system. Obviously, it saved them money as well, $135,000, et cetera. But to me, the more important thing is saving 
that many millions of gallons, which is crazy. They decrease their water usage by 25%. Now, here comes, I guess, the rub. With these sensors, what happens is you can create this huge drop, possibly, if, if you're if you're overwatering or overspraying chemicals, or there's lots of different options and ways to do this. But you're going to get that big drop like once, maybe twice, then you still have to pay for some of these services. Usually it's the sensors plus the data monitoring. The benefit for this company is that water prices are also increasing. So just simply by maintaining their new lower usage of water, as water prices increase, they will be still saving money. But I think that's an important thing to think about because a lot of IoT projects, you buy them once, but they do come with ongoing costs. Mm -hmm. And again, if you take them out, you're going to be possibly using more water, right? And I, I think it's it's just a subtle thing that kind of can get lost in the ways we account in businesses today and the way we think about ROI. So I just want to throw that out there for people who are looking at this. We're also seeing this sort of use based on different types of sensors. We're seeing it, you can do it at home with a soil sensor and a smart watering system. You can do it inside your home with water monitoring systems like at the pipes. I know that in talking to the people at Finn or at Moen Flow by Moen, those companies, if you install those systems, people who have like leaky toilets, like a lot of people have like insufficient, what is it? The valves in their toilets don't close all the way. And then that just creates a constant leak. Those things can really like they can detect that and then they can tell you about it, you can fix it and poof, suddenly you're not wasting as much water again. Now again, then that just lowers your overall baseline, which is great, but you might still be paying for the solution and subscription fees and that sort of thing. And then in agriculture, we're seeing a lot of this and we're only going to see more. And there's obviously Groundworks is using smart sensors. We see companies offering satellite overview and using AI and applying that to satellite overviews to say, hey, you should water now, you're fine, whatever. All of these are interesting options and kind of depends on where you are in the world. Like I know talking to people who install soil sensors in other parts of the world, they often get stolen. Hmm. <laughs> I know people dig them up, literally. And so in that case, you may want to rely on satellite. But there's a lot of opportunity here. And I think you just need to put a GPS tracker to track your water sensor. Oh, good Lord. IoT fixes everything. More IoT. Just add more electronics. <laughs> okay. So that is a good story. Let's talk about a story we talked about last week, and we're a little confused on, but I got way more information. So yay. We talked about Zigbee Pro 2023, which is an update to the Zigbee standard. And this came out earlier this month. The big focus was on security. I got excited because it is pushing Zigbee into another band. It's pushing in the sub gigahertz band here in the US. And I think that's way more significant simply because it's opening up a longer range, like a, a greater distance for Zigbee. And then it is also, they also wrapped into this something called Zigbee Direct, which allows Zigbee to work with Bluetooth and to kind of have. Bluetooth, like on a phone, act as a proxy for Zigbee for connecting devices to a Zigbee network. So those three things were part of the standard, the security stuff. I wrote about it. It's pretty in-depth. It is good. Don't get me wrong. And then I was most excited about adding the sub-gigahertz band because 900 megahertz is already used by a lot of other technologies, including Wi-Fi Halo. Sidewalk. Sidewalk. Well, yeah, Sidewalk at LoRaWAN proprietary Laura with Sidewalk, uh, Ysun, Wirepass, Z-Rave, or Z-Wave, not Z-Rave, that sounds like fun. <laughs> Z-Wave is, for their Z-Wave long-range technology, they're also using the 900 megahertz band. That's just because that spectrum is better for going through walls, going further. And I think that's really exciting. I did get some pushback from a really smart commenter that we get on the, the site. His name is uh, J.D. Roberts. Love him. 
he was telling me that the range discussion is confusing. He was like, well, Zigbee already has a long range profile. They already use 800 megahertz in Europe. So yes, but in talking to the folks at the CSA, they are talking about bringing this profile with longer range, with the greater distance for Zigbee and taking it further out from a distance perspective. They're going to talk more about it, though, later this year. They're going to release something in the second half of the year that really focuses on the new opening up the sub gigahertz band. So there'll be a lot more information. I do think that's important. On the Bluetooth front, basically what this is going to do is if you have a Zigbee device that has both Zigbee and Bluetooth, and then you have a device like an end device, like a sensor with Zigbee and Bluetooth, and you also have like your phone, you could actually use the Bluetooth to provision the Zigbee device to your phone and then bring that over to a network if you want, or leave it on your phone. But I don't know why you would do that because then when your phone goes away, you have no hub to control your Zigbee stuff. But the idea here is to help make provisioning of devices easier using a phone, which doesn't have a Zigbee radio in it. So that's basically it. Okay. After I wrote that story, I did get a a question from someone about Thread and if Thread was going to follow along because the deeply nerdy among us know that the Thread radio (laughs) is built on the 802.4.15 IEEE radio standard. The Zigbee profiles are an overlay on top of that as is thread on the top of it. So they use the same radio and you can, you can't, they're not interchangeable exactly, but with software and firmware updates, you can convert one to the other if you have enough memory and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's not easy. Okay. But someone said, Hey, is thread going to go long range? And I asked them because it's a darn good question. And the answer is, well, not anytime soon. So the thread group said, look, we have evaluated over the last two years, extended range. They've evaluated over more than the last two years, but here's what they said. They conducted a comprehensive evaluation of available technologies, including a variety of sub gigahertz options, as well as Thread, and concluded that Thread's self-configuring 2.4 gigahertz mesh remains the best technology for automation in residential and commercial buildings, including this extended range use case. So basically they're saying, look, you want long range, you put more thread devices out there, I guess. And that's fine. Yeah. Just make sure they're all on the same thread network because <laughs> I have like three or four thread networks in my house right now. And it's a... It's a little bit of a weirdness. It is. We're talking about Zigbee right now. No, Kevin. Okay, Zigbee. Okay. Well, actually, we're done talking about Zigbee right now. So that's, okay. the, that's the scoop on Zigbee Pro 2023. Now we're going to move not over to complaining about Thread yet, we're going to be talking about privacy. So this week, I wrote a whole thing about, and we talked about it last week, actually, with the launch of that smart knee, medical devices and smart medical in the home being a driving use case for getting real federal privacy legislation. And guess who else thinks that? NIST. Yeah! Kevin, you're such a good guesser. NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they are actually looking for your comments and product ideas to help it mitigate cybersecurity risks in telehealth smart home integration products. So they've got a whole project called Mitigating Cybersecurity Risk in Telehealth Smart Home Integration. Well, that's original. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But they're basically... There's a couple risks. There's your data privacy. There's like the worries that, and we talked most about that, but there's also risks that these devices inside a home could get hacked and then that could lead back to a hospital. So like if somebody gives me a connected device, like a connected Holter monitor for monitoring my heart rate, and that's something that might connect back to my telehealth providers or my doctor's hospital network, how do they make sure that doesn't get hacked while it's in my care? Right. So that's that's part of it, too. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of good stuff. If you have thoughts, what's going to happen is NIST is going to release a cybersecurity practice guide around that. That doesn't mean anything really, except for 
the federal government often uses these NIST guidelines as guidelines when they're writing regulations. So they'll be like, hey, we need a new digital privacy regulation for telehealth. We're going to say the following words and put these basic regulations in place. And then for the details, we're going to refer you to this continually updating NIST guide. That's how they've done smart home cybersecurity stuff. That's how they've done a couple other cybersecurity guidelines. It makes sense. Uh, for, for commenters or people who want to add their thoughts, you only have 30 days on this. And I mentioned that because last week we talked about a different RFC, and that was 90 days. So I wouldn't wait if you want It wanna... was actually, oh, it was 60. Oh, it was 60. Okay. Well, I, gee, I just lost 30 days. Well, anyway, this only gives you 30 days, so. Yes. Okay. So that is that. But it's so relevant right now because there's so many smart home medical devices that we should be thinking about. Now, these may not be provided by your doctor, but these are new products that I thought were really interesting. So a company called Cherish Health, they are making a little box (laughs) that goes in your home to track falls and movement using millimeter wave sensing. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know we think this is great. Millimeter wave sensing is a great way to like unobtrusively and in an ambient manner, track the way people are moving around a home and if they fall in and that sort of thing. As excited as I am that it doesn't have a camera, so you've got some level of privacy, this thing looks really nice. It's like, it looks like Ikea furniture. I mean, it's got wood uh, wood on top and bottom and it's got gray fabric. It's like, it would fit nicely in my house. So for me to age in place, that's all I'm saying. Would you have something like this in your home and would you feel okay with it? I'd feel better with something like this than cameras, absolutely. Um, I don't think we're yet at the age that we need this, but... I fall all the time, so I, I think it would be kind of an been interesting... been a while since my last fall, and that was in a parking lot when I wasn't paying attention. No, no, I, I, I mean, I, I would certainly consider this. Now, of course, because it's uh, it's got cellular connectivity... It's $300 for this device, and then there's a subscription fee of like $36 a month. And I mean, it's really not meant for homes yet. It, they're planning to sell this to senior living facilities, nursing homes, and so on. So we bought a device that, like, a, it's in a medical alert button mm-hmm. for someone in my family. And that medical alert button cost us, I think it was like, $100 for the button itself, and then we pay 25 bucks a month for monitoring, so someone will check in if the button gets pressed. So this is more expensive than that, but it's not like the person doesn't wear their button, which is a common issue. Right. So this, this is totally passive. This isn't something that somebody, you have to worry about somebody wearing something or whatever. Yeah, no, I, I don't have a problem with it. It's just Maybe when I'm when I'm old enough that I need it, uh, the technology prices will have to come down. <laughs> yeah, and no, that's depressing. I was going to say, and you may not need it for very long. Uh, oh, thanks. I know. <laughs> I'm a terrible. person. Yep, he fell. Okay, okay. terminate well, the contract. No, I, this is Stacy thinking about the business of all of this. I'm like, okay, how how long do you have to pay back your hardware if something's only going to last, you know, three years or two years in a home? Is that enough? Are you making enough money? Anyway, this is me just being morbid. Let's talk about smart scales. Also terrible. Wythings has announced a new smart scale. They already have so many. This is their third. This is called the Body Smart uh, Smart Scale, featuring Wythings Precision Technology. So they've got bioelectrical impedance analysis, weight sensors, algorithms for insights and health analysis. They call it an entry-level scale. It does do some advanced things such as heart rate, visceral fat, metabolic age, which is interesting how they do that. Um, I get that on my WISE scale. Yeah. uh, So, okay. Yeah. I'm like, Uh, eh. $99.95. The big feature here... (laughs) actually seems to be something called eyes closed mode. Basically, you don't have to close your eyes when you use the scale. You can just turn this mode on and it won't show your weight and other data on the screen of the scale. So if that bothers you, you don't have to worry about it. It'll just go into your Why Things app. And there's that's where you can see it. 
Um, yes, yes. You open your eyes in the app. You close your eyes on the scale. Yes. So you can you can steal yourself. So if you weigh yourself early in the morning and you're like, oh god, I need coffee and maybe a stiff beverage before I handle my weight, I can just you know get on there, I, deal look, with it, and I, I, open I'm, the app later. I'm joking about it, but I suppose there are people who just don't want to know the number at that time. It can be. I used to have an eating disorder. It was very triggering. I, yeah, like, okay. Remember, I didn't own a I do. Scale. I, I, so, I so this could be. But I also am not super worried about my weight, or I wasn't. Now I'm getting there again. Who knows? I'm old. Anyway. so I'm older. You are. This scale does everything my wise scale does, but my wise scale was like 30 bucks, and this one is 100 so just so you know, I, I do have to see the numbers on my Y scale. Although I don't have to look. I, if, I, if I don't look, then... Just close your eyes. See. So this will be available. It's available now. Yay. Okay, let's talk about more regulation, this time in the UK. Y'all remember that Amazon is trying to buy iRobot, which makes the Roomba for $1.7 billion? I hope you do. We talked about it. I remember. It's, so... The UK's Competition and Markets Authority, that's their version of the FTC, so they regulate mergers and acquisitions and other things, they are taking a look at this particular deal because they're like, hmm, I don't know if we want another giant company acquiring another smaller company. The deal is already being reviewed by the US Federal Trade Commission. So, you know, this was already happening, but now it's happening across the pond, as it were. So... That's all we really have there. This is a deal that's taking quite some time. But we do have some other Roomba news or iRobot news. Which may be good or bad, depending on your point of view and which model Roomba you have. And I'm going to say it, how attractive your ankles are. That's true. That's true. And I, I tend to go barefoot in my house quite a bit. So I do not have a Roomba with a camera. But if you do, your Roomba can now be a security camera. You can get a live view of your home. It's a beta feature called Remote Check-In. Basically, you've got a live streaming security camera roving around your floors, if that's what you want. Yeah. And it. this is something from JP over at The Verge. So she apparently has the Roomba J7. I do not, but hers has the camera on it. She's in the beta. I'm in the beta for mine, but I don't get any cool camera related betas. Darn it. Um, so it's only on the J7 series, but with remote check-in, there is no recording capability. It's only a live stream. The stream is not stored or viewable by iRobot. This is sort of important because iRobot did have a privacy issue where contractors could view video images from the upward-facing camera on Roomba devices. It was a third-party contractor that was saving these images and sharing them. It was not Roomba itself. But they also are encrypting the stream. So it's going to get to your phone. It has to go to Roomba servers. So what's going to happen is the video stream is encrypted from the Roomba all the way to your phone. So no one can see it except for you. So these are actually, that's actually a really nice feature. And then when the live view is active, the vacuum's LED button is going to glow green and the bot is going to go ping every few seconds. So it's not like you can secretly go live streaming through the house, which is nice. Yeah, these things aren't silent anyway, so. You know, well, yeah, but, but I mean, they're not silent, but they're a vacuum. So like if you hear the vacuum going, you're not necessarily, Yeah. I'm like, I still do things in my house that I don't want people to see if a vacuum's running. But now I'd be like, oh, no. I, I, I don't need this in my house. But uh, hey, it's interesting. And, and at least they are do taking a secure approach to it. So They've done a good job with the approach. And I think it'd be fun. Like, I would use it. Here's how I would use it. When I'm gone, my dog tends to jump up on the bed, which we hate. Normally we close the door. So we could do this, like we could check and see if the door was closed, for example. Like, is our bedroom door closed? Yay. If not, we could turn around. Or if we could also just like run it around and see if we see the dog. Now, if the dog's already in the bed, I can't do anything once I'm gone. But, you know, is it nice to know? You need a Boston Dynamics robot for that. Oh, a dog to get rid of the dog. That. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So anyway, but good on you, iRobot, for... 
thinking really hard about the security here. I, I do appreciate that and the kind of privacy elements. All right. Update on HomePod. Super fast. This will be fast. Are you ready? Yes. The previously announced feature is now available on HomePods. It will notify you when it hears your smoke detector alarm. Yeah, we've had this on Google <laughs> and Amazon. But yeah, go. Go HomeKit. Or go Siri. Go whoever. All right. Now, let's talk about Matter. This is the Matter segment of the show. Here First up, go. Matter is now available for your newest Nest thermostat that was released in 2020. That actually lets you use it with HomeKit if you want. But it's going to roll out over the next couple of weeks. But the downside is it's only that one thermostat. So, boo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was no promise of matter support back in, you know, with the prior Nest thermostats. I mean, Project Chip didn't even come out till 2019. So, I could see people being upset if their older Nest thermostat does not get this, but I get it. Yeah. And this is, this is the, let's see, it's about $90 right now. It's usually $130. It's a fine thermostat. It's not as pretty as the fancier ones, but I don't think people care too much about that. If you do, you can buy a fancy one and just use Google, I guess. But people are sad. And I get it because Thread actually came out of Nest. The Thread standard was launched and created, or I shouldn't say totally created, but it was headlined by Tony Fidel. Prototyped, envisioned, and then the engineers were forced to work on it. Anyway, and the original thermostats actually had Thread compatibility, but it's not the same Thread. So it's that old original version of Thread. There's no way to bring that back. Then there's Open Thread, and then there's... Oh, is it now? Oh, yeah. Now it's time to complain about Thread. So oh. let's tell them about your your Home Assistant Matter experience, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. Well, let, yeah, let me be clear. The Thread bits that I might complain about in a few minutes have nothing to do with my hands-on with the Matter beta for Home Assistant, because that's been, wow, that's been eye-opening. It's been super. And I did have problems last week with some Matter devices and I mean, it's all been resolved and everything's working in the house. We, I have multiple thread networks. Again, we'll get to that in a second. But the Matter beta for Home Assistant is probably the most exciting Matter experience right now out of all of them because the progress that the Home Assistant project is making is like lickety split, super fast. Like two months ago, they announced matter support in beta and it didn't have functions of like controlling the colors of bulbs and everything that's already in there now it supports showing all of your thread networks um so yeah i i have the essentials nanoleaf essentials bulb the nanoleaf essentials light strip and a tapo plug all across google home apple home kit and running in home assistant what's interesting there's no thread radio on my Raspberry Pi where I'm running Home Assistant. So there's a Python server that Home Assistant puts on the Pi and kind of interprets all the matter data and sends it over Wi-Fi to my other thread routers. And that's how the signal gets or the commands get to the different different devices. But uh, yeah, it's it's fast. It's really nice. Yeah. And i very curious, can you tell people how you resolved, you were testing the Nanoleaf Essentials lights, and we talked about it last week on the show, and you were a little frustrated. Can you tell me how that resolved, just so we all know? Yes. So the issue was twofold. Part of the issue was my testing procedure, which was to onboard one of the Matter devices using HomeKit and another using Google Home. When you do that, what happens? You know the answer to this. You have two different thread networks. So right now I have three thread networks because my Eros are also thread routers. Um, so putting everything on all of your matter devices on a single platform first and then adding or expanding it out to other controllers is probably the way to go. Additionally, I was having problems in the Nanoleaf app. Um, it did get an, a software update, but it was actually just easier to use the native HomeKit and Google Home Matter onboarding. And once I did all that and simplified my approach, everything was fine. In trying to test multiple scenarios, I made it harder on myself than it really should be. This is the issue that 
we sort of knew was coming. Because when I talked to people originally about matter, they were like, look, Thread is pretty young. And there are some concerns about how networks will be built, how like we'll manage multiple Thread networks, because people knew there would be different Thread networks out there. And you just ran into that issue. They're working on it still. I don't know if this is will this will ever be solved because part of core to the matter standard is this creation of these individual fabrics, like based on your smart home controller. Like it's not as seamless on the back end as it might appear to to use multiple controllers to control devices. Correct. Just to illustrate that, one of the, when I had um, shared all of the uh, matter devices across all my platforms or both platforms, I should say, but then I unplugged my Google Nest Hub any of the Matter devices that I onboarded there, Apple Home could no longer see them because that thread border router and that network that it was on, the device was on, is gone. I just have an unresponsive thing in Apple at that point. So this is not a good situation. I suspect most people will not make it as complicated as I tried to, to test for all the different possibilities, but it is something to be aware of. Yeah, and the best way to avoid having this happen is probably to pick one controller to onboard all of your Matter devices. Yes. <laughs> so start there, stay there, and keep it plugged in. And then you can open it up to other like controllers. Just be intentional about that for now. I, I should also point out in speaking about Matter and Home Assistant, this sort of turns your Home Assistant server into a Matter controller, but it's not standalone. It, you still need to have a Apple Thread router or a Google Thread router or eventually Amazon, etc. So it's a supplement currently. Currently. Oh, that is good to know. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I said it. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So... Now it is time for the Internet of Things podcast hotline, the segment of the show where we hear from you and we hopefully answer your questions. You can reach us at 512-623-7424 if you would like to call and ask us your question. I think you should because April's winners get a Nanoleaf Essentials bulb kit. So you can start playing with matter on your own. And right now you have a really good chance to win. So this week's question is again about electric outlets. We might have to find an electrician to talk to us for this show. Let's hear it. Hi, Stacy and Kevin. This is Shane calling from New York. And uh, I have two questions. Our electrical panel needs to be replaced and I'm considering getting a smart panel. Um, in the past, you've mentioned the span panel, but I'd like to know if there are others because one of the concerns I have is the possibility of any product orphaning, and that's a big capital outlay to have a product that gets abandoned at some point. The other thing I'm interested in is some smart plugs, and what I'd like are in-wall outlets, not the wall wart type that you know stick out of traditional outlet and also that will cover uh, the second plug. Do they exist, and do they also have them in the GFI-type format as well? The third thing, but this is not a priority, is um, light switches. I know I said two, two questions, but I have a passing interest in light switches as well for pretty much kind of a similar reason. We're an Apple household, so what we're looking for is something that can be preferably integrated into HomeKit. I'm looking forward to hearing if you guys have any suggested solutions. And uh, thank you for the great podcast. Bye. So Shane is doing something that I had considered in the past, but I have opted not to do because of the cost. He's considering getting a smart panel because he needs to replace his electrical panel. So I assume, okay, he's not going to be too upset about the cost, but depending on what you look at for a solution, you're talking about a couple thousand dollars. Like it, I would say two to three thousand minimum. Yeah. Oh, easily. Maybe even four, depending on how far you want to go in. So just 
swapping out your breaker box is like three to $5,000. And Shane, you didn't want to, you were, you were concerned about span because that's a company we've talked about because it's a startup in the space and they're doing something pretty unique, but you're like, Ooh, I don't want to invest that much. If it's a startup, it might go out of business, which totally legit, but Schneider electric Leviton and I believe Legrand all have smart breaker panel things. And when we talk about a breaker box, what usually ends up happening is you have that box on the in your garage or maybe on the outside of your home. And then there are circuits, individual circuits that run every circuit <laughs> in your house. Yes. So you take the chassis and then you can, some of them, you can swap out the circuits and you can buy only those that you need. So maybe like... Like a smart circuit, you mean? Yeah, like a smart circuit. You can, you can pick and choose, right. But again, they're not cheap. You're looking at like $120 per circuit. Yeah, it's not cheap. And your home, I mean, I don't know how many, mine has like 20 or 25 circuits. Yeah, same here. I, I have not, I, <laughs> I don't and know how many. Some I wouldn't care about so much, right? But there are others I would definitely want. Like, I don't need a smart circuit breaker to be able to flip off lights in my office if I left them on or something. I mean, I have a smart home features to do that. But... Uh, right, you know, for your washer and dryer, for your big, like your water heater, your electric car charger, your HVAC. Those are things where maybe you want some smarts. Because you could load balance at that point. Yeah, in a sense, you know? or you could you could load balance, but you could also like using software. You could say <laughs> only charge my car when I get these rates. We're not a hundred percent there yet, but that is the sort of thing that we're getting towards. And there are there are utilities that offer more granular demand response programs, and there are programs that are being developed by the tech industry to help make this happen, like the Home Connectivity Alliance, which is doing the cloud-to-cloud -cloud integrations for smart appliances and energy and demand response is one of their big use cases. Anyway, okay. So that's your breaker panel. The other thing you wanted and we're looking for were GFI-capable... Smart outlets. Those are, those are hard words to say. And, and they're hard devices to find. <laughs> they, they are. But Leviton has some. So Leviton, I can't tell you what the product number is, unfortunately, because they didn't give it to me. But they do say they have a smart GFCI slash AFCI solution. I wish I could tell you which it was, though. The other thing to note is a lot of smart outlets aren't actually UL certified. <laughs> I Yeah, people are not necessarily aware of that. But there's only a few out there on the market that are. So if that's important to you, which it might be, you may want to look for that. Now, if you're plugging a smart outlet, these are the wall wart ones, not the integrated ones. If you're plugging it into a UL certified outlet, that's less of a problem, but it's still something to be aware of. Okay. And then you also are using HomeKit. <laughs> yes. The smart load center stuff Almost all of those are pretty proprietary, but they they run using an app that's made by that company. So your devices won't talk directly. Like there, there isn't that kind of overlay, but they could talk via the app. So the app will control your breaker panel, and that obviously can happen on an iPhone or an Android device. Your outlets and your switches, though, would work with HomeKit as well as the other platforms in this case. Yeah. So you would just need to look for that. So, and then I would, on the matter front, I would look going forward. So I would say in the next couple of months, we'll see more matter products, even possibly integrated outlets, but I, we don't have any right now. <laughs> no, I've, I've seen and, and used uh, like the wall wart type plugs that are matter certified, but no outlets or switches yet. Yeah. And Matter does not yet support energy monitoring as part of the Matter standard and may not for quite some time. So that's another element here. I can't tell you when that's going to come out. So nobody's building products for it. You can still get energy information from the, the mobile app that goes with those plugs. I know the TP-Link Casa has it. Eve has it in the Eve app for their smart plug, but it's not part of Matter yet. No. 
Okay. So that hopefully, Shane, that's a lot, but hopefully at a minimum, you can start upgrading your breaker panel, your breaker box. You can pick one of the the three big ones, if you would like, and start getting smarter circuits in there and see what happens. Woo. Okay. So if you have a question for us, give us a call at 512-623-7424, and you will be entered to win the Nanoleaf Essentials pack. It's a three pack of bulbs. Very fun. And please call us. <laughs> call us, please. We want to hear from you. And that concludes this segment of the show, but please stay tuned for our guest, Robert Pyle, who is the head of real estate strategy at HOMA Group. We're going to be talking about their switch from starting off building integrated smart homes for like owners to building smart townhomes and smart rental properties. And we're going to talk about the technologies inside privacy, what's difficult about it, why the real estate market is so challenging at the moment for smart devices and more. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is OnLogic. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. And this week's sponsor is OnLogic. And I have Ross Hamilton from OnLogic here to talk to us about the convergence of OT and IT. Hello, Ross. Could you give the listeners a quick introduction? Sure. Thanks, Stacy. My name is Ross Hamilton, and I am a hardware systems and solution architect at OnLogic. We design and manufacture a wide range of edge and industrial computing platforms engineered to thrive in environments where your average consumer PC might fail. Okay, so I know OnLogic hardware is frequently used for industrial computing projects. And in that space, the concept of IT and OT convergence is a huge topic. So how and where do industrial computers fit into that discussion? Yeah, so the convergence of information technology and operational technology is definitely one of those topics that gets a lot of attention. To provide some background context, when we think about operational technology, we typically envision the type of industrial hardware associated with this as custom, fixed function, vendor-locked black boxes. And while the world wouldn't be what it is today without some of this OT hardware, there's always room for improvement. This is ultimately where the convergence and shift of OT to IT really comes into play. And how do you go about combining these two sides of the house? First, by pairing information technology with operational technology, we're able to build and enhance the capabilities of OT through the use of analytics collection and artificial intelligence. These enhancements, empowered by IT, also enable us to build smarter and safer factories by enabling real-time alerts to notify workers of potential hazards or issues. And second, through the deployment of industrialized PCs at the edge, often powered by advanced Intel processors, we're able to transition the fixed function OT black box workloads into software-defined solutions that can not only run the latest industrial workloads of today, but since they are software-defined, they can also be quickly and efficiently updated into the future for years to come. Great. So what's the potential value in combining IT and OT? At the end of the day, the convergence of IT and OT is all about gaining more business insight and improving efficiency. Every connected sensor, data point, or every video frame holds potential insights, and at OnLogic, we make it possible for our customers to capture that. Great. So if folks want to know more about OnLogic, where should they go? Sure. Please visit us at onlogic.com slash IOT to learn more. That's onlogic as one word, no hyphen, dot com slash IOT. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Robert Pyle, who is the head of real estate for HOMA. Hello, Robert. How are you today? Good morning. Good. Thank you. I am really happy to have you. Uh, HOMA is a company that is taking smart home technology and building it into both residential, like single family homes and also multifamily homes. So we're going to talk a lot about that. But first, I think it's probably worth talking about HOMA's kind of evolution. I was going to say change in plans, but y'all started out wanting to build smarter, smart homes, like single family or owned homes, townhomes, et cetera. Can you talk about kind of why y'all started there and, and kind of what the learnings were? 
Yeah. So, you know, the genesis of the company was really a you know frustration on the lack of options on the market that represented kind of what we felt were uh, truly modern uh, homes. There just was not a lot available on the market where that you would consider a smart home that you could buy. And our focus has been, you know, very user centric and thinking about how can we deliver the best experience for a user that builds on uh, the available technology in the market today and as well as, you know, kind of looking forward. The first project we did in the uh, in the North Bay Area was a single family home where we integrated a couple of different systems and really automated the home to have those systems work together. We completed that project early 2020. Uh, unfortunately, didn't get to use it quite as we had hoped in terms of user research and whatnot, uh, given what happened the rest of that year. But still, you know, we've been, stayed in contact with the owner and, and been able to get some feedback from them on how their experience has been and really used that as we went forward in designing uh, the next projects. And so we did design and construct a townhome community here in Portland, an 18-unit townhome community, which we completed and delivered uh, last year. And we opted to deliver it as a rental uh, community initially, mostly for the purposes of working with those residents and really, you know, hearing their experience and helping us, you know, kind of develop and mature the product. So the rental market being a little more receptive to that kind of a process, but the goal being, you know, to deliver projects for ownership, because we do feel that there's a lot more value that can be derived for owners that have these integrated smart home solution um, in terms of protection from water leaks and utilities and those kind of other things like that. So that's kind of where, where we started and where we're going now is working more in multifamily communities and and applying the home and smart home experience in in that sector of the market as well. Okay. Yeah, you're navigating some some really frothy waters with both real estate during post-COVID and the smart home, which like really shot up. People were like, yeah, I need this. And now we're all like, oh, I don't know how to make money with this. Maybe I don't need this. Oh, what's happening? So we're going to talk about it. All right. So first off, you you alluded to some of the reasons why smart home matters for homeowners. So can you talk more about how you're thinking today's modern homes? So today's homes should be smarter. What are the technologies that you're embedding in them? Yeah. So we're starting with kind of a really unique uh, lighting solution. So, you know, everybody has a variety of options today when it comes to smart lights. But, you know, our solution uh, is, is sensor based. So our homes have a variety of sensors based uh, installed throughout the home that really kind of drive the system, but primarily drives the lighting system. So you think about obviously motion sensors as well, moving from room to room, lights come on, lights turn off. Our lighting system also adjust throughout the day, the light level. So brightness, um, obviously a little more bright in the morning and evenings, less bright during the day. We also adjust the color temperature. So making the light a little bit more cool blue in the mornings, a little more warm oranges in the evenings. You're really trying to make the lighting as natural as possible. And so throughout the day, the lighting um, is designed to be you know, optimal for the conditions for what you're doing, what's the outside light doing, how much natural light's coming in, things like that. So that's kind of the the key uh, feature of, of our system today. But going beyond that, we've also integrated, you know, connectivity with thermostats uh, and smart door locks, smart outlets, you know, kind of core components of, you know, what most folks might think of as, you know, smart home features or aspects of smart home devices you could bring into your home. And in addition to lighting, what else are you building in there? Yeah, so connecting you know thermostats and smart locks, of course, as you know, sort of a baseline standard. But then looking forward, you know, the opportunities that really bring value for home ownership would be things like water leak detection or even water submetering, not submetering in a home, but m- measuring your water usage as well as measuring energy usage. So those t- types of features you know are likely going to be much more valuable for a homeowner than a rental resident. Yeah, as much as they may be valuable for the property manager. But you know, thinking in terms of the single family environment, you know, those are some of the features that we're looking to connect to kind of help bring more value, uh, more prediction when it comes to maintenance and or issues as well. And is your strategy to get off the shelf devices? Like I know KB Homes, for example, did deals with a bunch of existing smart home device companies. Or are you finding a little bit more customizable solutions or building your own? Oh, yeah, all three, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so we are um, working with some off-the-shelf options when it comes to devices. We are developing partnerships with different device manufacturers as well. So, you know, Iris Oyama is a major uh, device manufacturer in Japan. Uh, That's one of the major components of our system. But we're working as well with other, like Daikin, uh, for example, on the HVAC side, um, integrating with their smart thermostat. We're having conversations with a variety of other uh, device 
manufacturers as well and how we may be able to integrate their devices into our system. So there's some partnerships being developed there. There's some off-the-shelf stuff that has you know, open APIs for being able to integrate with those devices. Uh, and then we are also developing our own uh, devices where it, it kind of makes sense. Got it. We'll talk about matter in a little bit about this. But first, I want to go back to the transition that y'all have made because, oh my gosh, the real estate market, super crazy. You've switched from building homes for the homeowner to multifamily and rental units. And not that you can't have multifamily that are also owned like a townhome community, but you've switched to the rental model for now. Can you talk about why you've done that? And then we'll talk about the complexities of building for an owner that turns over every year or so. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, you know, to be clear, we are continuing to do both. Um, so we are developing, you know, product for ownership directly. And then we are also working with third party developers and builders on bringing our smart home experience to the rental multifamily market. And we always kind of saw that segment of the market as an opportunity for this experience that we've developed. I mean, we do feel that, you know, renters um, could benefit you know, from this experience the same way a homeowner could, or many of the same ways, I should say. We've definitely accelerated the timeline of our entry into that market for a variety of reasons. I think, as you mentioned, yes, the real estate market these days is a little crazy. Diversification is a good thing. And also the opportunity. You know, the multifamily market has, there's significant opportunity and significant demand there in multifamily to bring a, you know, truly, you know, great smart home solution. And, you know, no time like the present. Um, so working with you know developers to have projects on the books that are going uh, is also an opportunity for us to scale uh, a little more quickly than we might have otherwise been able to. What have y'all found to be different about developing for multifamily? Yeah, so you know, multifamily uh, projects generally are just more complex than, for example, a single family home construction. So, you know, for us to kind of go from one to the other is, has been, you know, interesting. I think, you know, there's different types of construction as well. So obviously most multifamily, most single family homes are you know, kind of a wood construction. Most multifamily are a little bit higher, uh, taller, you know, high rising construction with concrete and steel. And so there's a lot more going on and a lot less space in a multifamily environment most typically um, so coordinating with the contractor and the subcontractors you know the building information modeling that we use for big projects like that and coordinating you know where's the hvc plumb and plumbing going where's the electrical running and then oh yes now we also have this smart home solution to integrate so just the complexity of integration has been a challenge but a good challenge bringing our own or having residents bring their own devices is not quite the model that we're expecting i think you know really our goal is to deliver the move-in ready smart home experience but the infrastructure the design the construction piece of it is definitely where it gets more complicated and how are y'all handling that infrastructure so like are there multiple wireless networks like my smart home infrastructure is on one wireless network yeah, no, great question. Yeah. So, yeah, our design is to isolate um, the smart home system. So kind of all the parts and pieces from a resident's you know, own Wi-Fi, let's say. So, you know, if you were to move into a home, a home, the home hub and the kind of the cornerstone AI software that runs on it and all the devices that connect to it are independent from uh, your, you know, uh, Stacy's Wi-Fi network. And that, you know, we're doing that for both system integrity, you know, privacy, security, and kind of those types of considerations, but really keeping them isolated. You're obviously going after a certain demographic with smart homes built in. What does that demographic look like today? You know, our experience at um, our Mount Tabor community, uh, so again, that was 18 units. Um, as we delivered that to market last year and started to lease those units, the type of person that was interested or that ended up, you know, leasing a unit and, and living in the community was all across the board. Um, you know, we did uh, expect there to be some concentration in, you know, maybe yeah, that segment that you might think is a little more uh, tech forward. But honestly, we've ended up with certainly some of those types of folks, but also a lot of retirees, um, you know, people who I think see the value in the sort of the do it for me orientation of the unit, um, being able to enjoy some smart home features without having to go through the headache of the DIY options, let's say. So that's been a surprising learning from that particular project. And I think, you know, have every expectation going forward, that'll continue to kind of be the case as well. And when I look at the advertising, now this is the advertising on the developer website, it looks like, for the Mount Tabor units, the smarts are not really emphasized up front. The, the, the modern design, the kind of clean design, big windows, 
open floor plans, that seems to be the biggest kind of selling point. And then the listed as architectural intelligence is an item, but it's not like smart home forward in the advertising is our, the marketing for this. Yes. Yeah. So if you're, um, if you're looking at either our website or like the Zillow uh, rental listings, for example, um, there's a little bit of kind of specific orientation of those listings, given that kind of platform. Um, we definitely have you know, tried to include the details on the smart home features and or the smart home aspect, but it is aggregated, right? It's sort of capturing everything that's associated with the property in, in those particular listings. And how much does adding a smart home, how much value does that add to a rental listing or to a home? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And that is very much what we're still exploring as well. So, you know, I can say that, you know, for the Mount Tabor property, for example, we did achieve about a 10% premium on the rents relative to our competitive set. In conducting interviews with all of our residents um, over the last year, you know, the reason that they were attracted to the property is diverse, of course. Um, you know, we have some folks who really were drawn to the design and the technology side of things was kind of a, a a nice to have. And then we do have some residents who've said, you know, they expressly chose the property because of the smart home features. So it is, you know, kind of a combination at the moment um, for the, the amount of value we're able to create with this kind of an option. Um, and so the differentiation between how much of that's design driven versus how much of it's technology de- uh, driven is very much what we're still uh, researching. And I think the opportunity to test the home and smart home experience in the uh, high rise multifamily environment where we have less design influence, I- I'd say, is really kind of where we expect to understand more about kind of A and B testing for, you know, if somebody could choose a unit in this building that was regular, let's say, um, versus choosing one that has the home and smart home experience, you know, what, uh, how much more might they be willing to pay for that? And we've seen, you know, a variety of research over the last couple of years in particular, but, you know, lots of research from home industry or real estate industry, you know, trying to quantify that. And it's unfortunately kind of all over the board, depending upon the details, but, you know, generally speaking, there is a consensus that there is a premium there to be achieved and that people are interested and willing uh, to pay a little bit more than maybe they might otherwise to have some of these features delivered to them and or integrated into their unit. Nice. Yeah, I, I definitely, mine is a lot of work and I still, I still <laughs> want some of these features. Um, yeah. Let's, let's address the privacy issue because when you have smart features in a home that you don't own, the question becomes, well, gosh, what does my landlord seek? How are y'all addressing things like privacy and access to the data provided by these homes? Yeah, so a great question. You know, no, we're not providing any third parties with access uh, to the data. The data that we you know collect is used expressly for the purposes of kind of improving the smart home experience. Um, so, for example, understanding you know what lights are on when that kind of thing, uh, we do expect to use that to further fine tune the settings and automations that we have built into the system. So, you know, you as a home home user, you are the only one that have, you know, access to your to your unit in terms of controls. So, for example, like the landlord's not going to be able to get in there and turn off the HVAC, for example. But we are using, you know, sort of your cues from uh, a temperature set point or, you know, if you've adjusted the automation because you want a certain scene to kick on at a different time, uh, being able to receive that cue and build that into your unit's automation going forward. That's kind of how we're how we're handling that currently. Got it. And then let's talk about matter because it seems like that could be a real benefit for y'all, but it might also make what you're doing less compelling from an integration perspective. So how do, how do y'all view matter? I, that's a great question. Um, and honestly, probably one I'd have to defer to um, my, my tech side colleagues on. I know, you know that there's excitement about the opportunities that are there. I think figuring out how and where it kind of best fits in um, is definitely still you know, kind of TBD. But I think lowering the 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 pain thresholds or the those the DIY kind of pain points, I should say, is really kind of our goal. We want to deliver you know that move and ready smart home experience and make it reliable, of course, and secure and everything else. So that's really kind of where we're focused. Got it. Well, and I think like the ability to put any sort of matter enabled light switch, for example, in or outlet in and have it be controlled by your own hub and any other hub becomes really compelling. And the fact is that if you do that, the idea is it'll work forever. Okay. And then the last thing I would love to hear about is longevity, because I've been doing this now since 2013. And I can tell you that out of all of the devices that I've installed in my home, and I've installed literally hundreds, probably only four or five still work today. Um, and 
lucky me, I've moved. So yeah. <laughs> I don't, but not everybody moves within a 10 year right. period. So yeah. how are y'all handling longevity and what are you telling your device makers and your owners, renters? Yeah, so that's the kind of nice thing about our approach in terms of you know, integrating the smart home platform from you know the ground up, so to speak. When we're designing our own you know communities, obviously being able to put in the wiring infrastructure and and you know the, the support that's needed to make sure that all of the bones are in place. And then similarly, working with um, you know the multifamily developers from the point of construction, we're able to really build in you know the infrastructure needed to get as far as we can in future proofing. So having all the wiring in place, for example, um, so that you're not having to go in and tear out the walls in the future when you need to put in a new device that needs some kind of new wire. Definitely doing our best to make sure there's adequate opportunity for you know, future expansion and flexibility there. And then on the devices itself too, you know, having the the home enabled with this platform, the goal very much is to make the devices interchangeable, but upgradable over time. So as we develop more features, more opportunities for adding devices, things like that, the system's very much designed from the ground up to be able to do that flexibly. So to give ourselves the most, you know, longevity to your, to your question. Um, and also for our residents too, I think if you buy a home, a home, for example, you know, the goal would be that, you know, every so often, you know, if you wanted to add a new feature that we've developed, you know, we could, we could help you do that by capitalizing on the infrastructure that was put into the home from, from initial construction. Got it. All right. Well, maybe I'll wander down to Portland someday and check these out. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having us. And that concludes this week's episode of the Internet of Things cast. Please join us Thursday and don't forget to subscribe. And if you can't get enough IoT news, I would love for you to sign up at www.stot.com for our weekly IoT newsletter, where we explain all kinds of things that we don't even get to on the show. And please subscribe. Subscribe.